Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. This is the seventh episode of this fall semester 2021. My name is Marila Oskerson, Assistant Director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by co-director Doug Weatherford and Professor of Hispanic Literature and Film in the BYU Department of Spanish and Portuguese. It's a pleasure to be with you, Doug. Oh yeah, it's a pleasure's mine. It seems like I'm on uh, the podcast frequently and it's great, great to be back and to talk with you. Well, you're a favorite. I apologize for my voice. Uh, it's not COVID, but yes, I do have a bit of a cold, so bear with me. So this week, the series is Indigenous Voices in the Americas. Doug, why are you excited about the films this week? Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm really excited about the topic, first of all. It was one that I kind of pushed because there is such a resurgence or a flourishing, maybe I should say, of uh, representations of indigenous voices uh, throughout the Americas. Of course, I'm a bit more familiar with what's going on in Latin America from Mexico in the north all the way down to the southern cone in the south. But I think that the topic is very interesting right now. And of course, we decided to play this topic precisely during the week where we celebrate both Columbus Day and uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. And so I think BYU is going to have a treat to be able to see a number of films that explore Indigenous voices from the Americas. You mentioned that there's a, an increased number of films about Indigenous voices from the Americas about Indigenous people and, and by Indigenous people. What can you say about this, this increased number of films? I think it's a part of uh, just the general trend nowadays to look for more diverse voices. And I think that's certainly happening in Latin America. And those who are fans of film from Latin America will notice that all of a sudden there are quite a few options if you want to see a film that is not in Spanish or Portuguese, or that may have some elements of Spanish and Portuguese, but also represent some of the hundreds of indigenous languages throughout the Americas. And I might say, Marilor, that, and you know this, that when we were looking at putting you know, films together for this series, for this week, that uh, we were really interested in trying to spread out the geography. And so, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that we got at least one film from North America. And of course, we ended up with uh, one from Canada, one from the United States, actually from the state of Utah. And then we jumped down to Mexico. And then our furthest south we go will be a Peruvian film that is shot entirely in Aymara. And so I think that, uh, you know, go, moving north to south or south to north, uh, there are some uh, really fun films. And in, in fact, in a minute, I might talk about some of the other films this semester that also have indigenous voices. So they're actually more than four. But definitely, I think that we can see that, that uh, indigenous voices are becoming more and more important in film representations, especially as making films, independent films is becoming easier. You don't need a huge crew, you don't need a huge budget. And uh, so I think that that, among other things, is one of the reasons why we're seeing a new flourishing of uh, indigenous voices. Have you read anything about how these films might be changing some of the ways that societies are considering looking at the indigenous people of their countries? 
Well, I certainly think uh, that in Latin America, where I'm a bit more familiar with the situation, it's just as important in the countries of, of Latin America to understand the diverse nature of their, of their countries as it is for, for us in the United States. And, and I think sometimes within the United States, we have the, the false impression that, um, you know, if you're from Mexico, you're Mexican. If you're from, you know, Argentina, you're Argentina. And that means one thing as we have it set in our minds. But all of these countries have a, a very diverse collection of, of peoples and languages. Mexico in particular is a very diverse country. In fact, my own missionary experience, I served as a full-time missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in northern Mexico and had the rare privilege of not only speaking Spanish while I was in northern Mexico, but also English and German. And it's something that has been fun for me sometimes to teach even Mexicans about the diversity of their own countries and realizing that in northern Mexico in the state of Chihuahua, that you do have German spoken among the Mennonites who live in that area. And then, of course, there's some Mormon colonies up in that area that speak uh, English and Spanish and whatnot. And of course, there are also Taramuara Indians. So there's a real cultural vibrancy in northern Mexico that even a lot of Mexicans don't understand. And so getting back to your question, I think that from Argentina to Guatemala to Mexico and in between that even sometimes people where you might say that, you know, somebody from Peru, for example, might for the first time see on screen a representation of Aymara Quechua Indians from their own country that they know exist. They know they're up there in the high Andes, but they might not know a lot about them and may not have heard a lot of their language. And so I think that, that that's a very positive way in which indigenous filmmaking is allowing us, whether in the United States, Canada, Mexico, Peru, Argentina, or wherever, kind of understand this diversity and to hear a linguistic diversity, which is a, a lot of fun for those of us who are who are language fanatics. We love hearing languages and watch and seeing film in their original languages. And it's so much fun to see a film in uh, Taramuara or Quechua or Quechiquel or, or what have you. Beautiful. And you, so you mentioned those indigenous languages. Can you talk a little bit more about the languages that are portrayed in the films that we're showing this week? But as well, I want to include La Llorena. And this film is coming the week of Halloween. And maybe as well, looking at some of the films that we've shown the past semesters. Yeah, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about uh, La Llorona. But uh, I'll, I'll start first with the four films that are playing this week. And this, of course, is the, the week of, uh, uh, of Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day. So that's where we're set, if you happen to be listening to this a bit after these films show. But from Canada, we have uh, Cusipan, which is a 2019 film that is shot uh, fairly close to Quebec. And it's French and Innu. And is a really interesting film. It's by director Miriam Veralt. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Marie Lord, help me. Uh, but it is based on the novel by Naomi Fontaine, and is really quite fun because it shows the struggles in a friendship between two young Innu women who kind of have divergent paths, issues of identity and coming of age and community and belonging flow throughout this film that is uh, that is quite a bit of fun. So that is a film in French and Innu. And then as we drop down, we get to uh, one that I think is going to be particularly interesting to those in the BYU community. It's called Scenes from the Glittering World. It's a 2021 film. It's a documentary by Jared Jenkins. 
The film is mostly in English, but has a lot of Navajo in it as well. And it was uh, filmed uh, not only within a marginalized community, but one of the fun things about this film is that we go to the furthest corners of the Navajo Nation, just above the Arizona border into southern Utah, and uh, understand that it's about 100 miles or so from the nearest city. And we follow three Navajo youth and their struggles of, uh, you know, just that typically kids of that age kind of have those struggles, but also within a natural environment and a cultural and linguistic environment that adds particular weight to their experiences. And this film has a very strong connection to BYU. The director and a number of the cast and crew are from Utah. Some of them have connections to BYU. And I think that this is a particularly relevant film for the BYU audience. And maybe, uh, Marilor, you could uh, just quickly give a plug for the event that we're going to have on Thursday for those who hear this as it uh, initially comes out. Absolutely. If you're listening to this and October 14th is around the corner, come and join us in the Kimball Tower, 250 of the Kimball Tower. The film will screen at 5.30 and directly after the screening, we will have the great privilege of having a panel discussion about this film. Jared Jenkins, as you mentioned, the film director, will be there. And two of his producers, Ronnie Joe Draper and Scott Christopherson, who are both uh, BYU professors. So it will be so nice to go into the making of this film or what what happened and what what are the feelings and the the thoughts of of all the filmmakers there i'm really looking forward to that so please join us in 250 of the kimmel tower on thursday that's when it will take place so i wanted to add something about qc pan i think that there's some choice passages that quote the book that the book is uh, that the the film is is based on and that i thought that the the writing was very strong and and um quite beautiful yeah and i think uh, you know going back to that just I, I think that people will enjoy it just because of that connection to what life must be like for the individuals who are on a reserve, right? In Canada, they call them reserves here, reservations. And that sense of belonging, but also being marginalized, I think uh, is going to be a lot of fun for people. Yeah. And maybe uh, maybe that's a good way to continue, right? Is to talk about these films before I, I give too many details about them. But just one thing that I might say about scenes from the glittering world that uh, I, I was very interested hearing the director uh, Jared Jenkins mentioned that he chose to shoot the film in in widescreen, right? So there's a wide wide angle lens that he's using, and uh, he did that in part to perhaps connect this documentary. And sometimes you don't use that widescreen for documentary filmmaking, but in this case, he felt like it gave a connection perhaps to some of the representations of indigenous individuals in Westerns that, uh, you know, from about the fifties on frequently showed these huge, enormous, beautiful landscapes through a, a widescreen lens. And so he recreates that in this documentary, perhaps feeling a little bit out of place, but giving that same epic, perhaps visual feel to the voices of three Navajo youth who are struggling through the various years of, of high school and the various things that, um, that they struggle with. The next film, I'll uh, say perhaps a little bit less about this film at the moment, but uh, my favorite uh, film this week is going to be uh, Lorena Light-Footed Woman. It's a uh, particular interest to me because I, I'm 
a fairly good friends with the director, Juan Carlos uh, Rulfo. It's a short 28-minute documentary film about a Taramuara, also known as the Raramuri, indigenous woman in her early 20s who competes in ultra-marathon running. And uh, since I uh, served my mission in that part of northern Mexico, I knew very well of the fame that uh, this particular indigenous group had for running and running long distances. And this film is just a beautiful representation of the life and exploits of this uh, this young woman. Perhaps we'll come back to that uh, again a little bit later, but uh, I'd like to drop to our next film as we move from north to south, and it's called uh, Eternity or Wiña Pacha. Uh, it's a 2017 film by uh, Oscar Catacora from Peru, and it is the first feature-length film shot entirely in Aymara. And so even though it is a Peruvian film, if you go to hear Spanish, you're gonna, you may hear a few words of Spanish, but this is, uh, this is shot in Aymara. And what a beautiful film. It has two characters, an old married couple who are towards the end of their life and begin to struggle with the extreme environment in which they live. It was shot in an area fairly close to Lake Titicaca in Peru in the high Andes. And as I understand it, the shooting locations were well above 13,000 feet in elevation. They, they miss a son who migrated to the city years ago and hasn't returned to visit. And so all of those things come into play. And the photography is beautiful. The, the conversation between this couple is beautiful. And it's just a simple, beautiful film that imagines not only old age, but what, what it's like to live in these kind of difficult circumstances. Uh, one thing I might point out about this film is that Oscar Catacora, the director, used a lot of his family members uh, in the production of the film. So if you look at the credits at the end, you'll notice that last name appears over and over again. Uh, and it's kind of fun. Of course, he's connected to that culture and uh, was sent when he was fairly young to live with his grandparents in the high Andes. And this film is kind of a recollection of that experience. And he, he learned to speak Aymara, even though he, had, he, as I understand it, he had learned Spanish first. But the uh, husband, the old man, the grandfather in this uh, particular film is actually his grandfather. And neither of the two characters are, are actors. They hadn't acted in anything. In fact, I understand that the that the, um, uh, the the woman, the female protagonist, that she had never even seen a film until she acted in this one and saw the film when it came out. And so it's just a beautiful, fun film. These are four great films that celebrate indigenous cultures, indigenous landscapes, and indigenous voices. And we hope that people will go see them and enjoy them. And I'll stop for a minute, but I, I would like to talk about, maybe mention some of the other indigenous films that have played at BYU International Cinema in recent years. But what do you think, uh, Marilor, about these films? Eternity has taken my heart. It's a love story to the Andes. It's a, it's a film that it is absolutely beautiful, not only because the cinematography is amazing, but as well the way the people are filmed and the people, the story that they tell. And this, this kind of tension might not be the right word, but between tradition and the modern world, and definitely at play in this film and in a lot of the films that we're showing this, this week. And I hope that our students will, will come out of those screenings enriched by learning more about a tradition and a culture and a language, things that are unfortunately disappearing in, in, in many ways. 
things that we are discovering and that um, these films are definitely inviting us to embrace in, in many ways in our own aesthetics and enjoyment of humanity, I would say. Yeah. I love those comments. And just to real quickly point out that there are some other indigenous language films playing uh, this semester. We've already seen The Mission, uh, which has uh, quite a bit of Guarani in it, of course, 1986. It's uh, it's a very different style film and uh, perhaps romanticizes, idealizes, mythifies indigenous communities a bit more than it should. But it's a really amazing film that had a great Ennio Morricone score. We've also shown Guarani, which is a film shot uh, between Paraguay and Argentina and has a lot of Spanish in it, but also a lot of Guarani. And uh, Guarani is so important in the country of Paraguay that it's one of its two national languages. And most missionaries, as I understand it, who are called for the Church of Jesus Christ, who are called to serve in that country, uh, do learn some of both languages. We've also seen identifying features that we showed last semester as well during our Encore Week that has a small fraction of the film is in indigenous languages in northern Mexico. Uh, But you mentioned La Llorona that I want uh, perhaps to hear uh, you talk about. La Llorona is uh, coming up soon in in 2021 uh, by director Jairo Bustamante, who also shot the film uh, uh, um, Iscanu. Which uh, showed er, it showed in uh, maybe about a year or so ago at International Cinema. I don't remember quite when it showed. It was the first feature film shot entirely in Cachiquel, which is a Mayan language. But the film we're showing is La Llorona. And I think people are going to really like this film. So, Marilor, I, I really am interested in hearing your thoughts about this Guatemalan film from 20... Uh, it's 2021, I think, isn't it? 2021, yes. La Llorona, for me, is definitely about this myth of La Llorona, the weeping woman. She has lost her children to a tragic and violent circumstances, and she's coming back to haunt the living, crying and looking for her children. In this film, I found that La Llorona is such a powerful image of a woman who has lost everything to violence and is coming back for justice. I love the symbolism of the water that she brings with her. The water will will go everywhere. If there is a flood, there is not a space that is going to not be taken by that water. And I think the symbolism of that justice that she represents, I'm passionate about it. And so she brings that justice, that water that will wash away this this society of the many horrible things that have happened in Guatemala. At the beginning, they talk about the massacres that have happened and how they hurt all fabrics of society. And I think that giving a voice to the people who have been killed and silenced for for so, so many years is a strength to to those people and a heritage and belong to the identity as well of of that culture. And so a very important film, a very beautiful film, like the the fabrics in the film, the wallpapers as well. There's so much to look for. It's in our week of international horror, but really this is a beautiful film. And even though La Llorona, I wanted to ask you actually, Doug, because she scares people, but for me, she's just such a beautiful, she's powerful, but she's such a beautiful emblem of 
retribution of justice that um, in the film, it shows that her own people fear her. And I was wondering if you had a comment on that, because for, for of course, for the guilty to fear such such powerful influence, I, I understand. But for the people that she defends, why are they scared of her? We see that in the film. Or do they know that it's her coming to this home that she's going to she's going to hunt and and get justice? Yeah, and this is a, a, a fun film to hear both Spanish and uh, some Mayan uh, languages in it as well. And one of the things I like about this film is that I think most people who hear the title are going to assume we're, gonna, we're talking about Mexico. Uh, Mexico is uh, typically the country associated with the uh, La Llorona myth or legend, right? But it's really a legend that comes from Mesoamerica and Guatemala, of course, is part of that. And at one point, uh, Southern Mexico um, was part of Guatemala and Guatemala was part of Mexico. So that uh, division, that line that separates Mexico from uh, Guatemala, which we talked about in a film uh, last semester called Yib, Y-I-B, that was a great documentary filmed right on that border. But the division between uh, Mexico and Guatemala isn't as clear cut as we assume, particularly because of the indigenous Mayan uh, cultures and languages that straddle that border. And so this is set in Guatemala. It's a Guatemalan director, one of the uh, one of the most important Guatemalan directors in the entire history of Guatemalan uh, filmmaking, which is fairly young in, in, in many respects. And it connects very concretely with a historical reality that it that was a 30-year civil war uh, in Guatemala that took the lives of significant numbers of uh, indigenous peoples, Mayan uh, peoples. So the film itself is fictional, right? But it is connected to a, a historical, a political, a violent reality that gives it a very contemporary feel. Um, but it also connects to a pre-Columbian myth. And that pre-Columbian myth, as you're talking about, you know, this fear that people have of La Llorona, uh, it actually goes uh, before the Spaniards arrived, La Llorona. And there are quite a few variations on the on the legend. So uh, don't get too wrapped up in any one version because you will find different. But all of them tend to deal with a woman who has lost her children. And in some versions, perhaps they have drowned, perhaps she has drowned them. But uh, to spare she, them, right? From my understanding, to spare she, them from, to spare the children from absolutely a horrible a war situation or that well, violent think, situation, right? Yeah. Well, I think that that is perhaps a part of the contemporary rereading of the uh, Yorona myth, right? But uh, to perhaps put it, place it historically in contemporary Guatemala, but also uh, perhaps I think you can draw connections to the conquest period and the arrival. I, I think, although it's not completely obvious, I think the film does play with that idea that this is a 500-year trauma that has been going on. But La Llorona myth actually predates the arrival of Hernán Cortés and his men in the early you know, 1500s. And, and it was, uh, as we understand it, a, a story that was often told to children kind of as a way to, you know, perhaps the boogeyman, you know, might be something that we have today, but as a sense that, you know, La Llorona will get you if you don't behave in this way, right? And so the sense of, of being afraid of La Llorona is definitely a part of the story. And there are so many variations on this story that uh, are, are popping up that it's a really 
interesting uh, legend that is becoming much more than just part of Mesoamerica, just part of Mexico. We, we hear it, we see it much more here in the United States. And I would connect it as well to, for example, the, the Virgin of Guadalupe, La Virgen of Guadalupe, or the Chupacabras, right? Uh, for those of you who know that, that there are certain, or even the Day of the Dead, maybe that's even a better one, right? Mm-hmm. That there are certain mm-hmm. cultural markers of Mesoamerica, Mexico, Guatemala, that are becoming more and more expansive. And uh, La Llorona, I think, is becoming more and more a part of our own myth-telling within this country. And uh, you'll notice that by a number of films that talk about La Llorona, a number of uh, even television shows that that, that deal with this particular character. And it's fun, it's interesting, and the connection that uh, Bustamante makes to the contemporary world and specifically to the indigenous cultures of Guatemala, I think are a lot of fun. Well, something to look forward to our week of international horror for sure. (laughs) Doug, would you um, please expand a little bit more on Lorena light-footed women that we're going to see this week, as we mentioned? Yeah, you bet. And even though this, I mentioned this is my favorite film, we've talked uh, less about it. Uh, and perhaps for good reason, uh, this uh, coming Wednesday, Wednesday. It's a one-time screening at, at BYU. Our documentary screened two to three times, our films four times, but this documentary is a one-time thing. Right. And uh, so we will show it uh, only the one time and it will be in conjunction with a conversation about uh, the work of uh, the director Juan Carlos uh, Rulfo. Um, We have been hoping to have a taped conversation with uh, with Juan Carlos, but uh, he's uh, shooting out of country at the moment and that may not work out. But I no fear. I'm I'm prepared to talk about this film and I have a lot of things to say. So grateful for that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And I boy, I just. Uh, uh, Juan Carlos, for those of you who don't know, is the uh, youngest child of Mexico's uh, perhaps most iconic writer, Juan Rulfo, who is the author of Pedro Paramo and the collection of short stories called uh, uh, The Burning Plain, El Llano en Llamas. And like his father uh, before him, Juan Rulfo died in 1986. Juan Carlos uh, makes films that, like his father's literature, try to explore national identity through the diverse people and places of the country. And if you haven't discovered Juan Carlos documentary features yet, you should. And Lorena Lightfooted Woman is a great place to start. He's a frequent visitor in Utah, uh, having worked often with the Sundance Institute. He has had two films uh, screen at Sundance, which for any filmmaker, independent filmmaker, getting in is nearly impossible. He's done it twice uh, and won Best World Documentary for a film called In the Pit, uh, a few years back, I think it was, uh, I cannot say, I, I probably shouldn't even try to say about 2005, 2006, perhaps somewhere in that time period. But this film, this short documentary that we're going to show once on Wednesday is a film that will just, you'll just love it. There's not a very strong directorial intervention. He lets the indigenous characters, Lorena and her family speak for themselves And we see her not only as a runner, but also as an individual who lives her life in a a small community, a family community in the mountains of the state of Chihuahua. And I think people will really like this short documentary. Uh, So I encourage you. It's delightful. It's delightful to meet Lorena, to feel her passion for running. 
and as well her strength to remain who she is. She's a very accomplished runner. She runs with professional runners and yet she she stays in her traditional uh, dress and shoes. She's a strength at the core. She's amazing. And and her shoes. When you say shoes, we might say that they're sandals, <laughs> yes. right? And and uh, they're not even well built sandals. And uh, in one particular scene, Marie Lord, you remember this that uh, she has a number of new pairs of shoes that she's been gifted over the years. And she takes them out of the box and says, you know, I don't know if I want to wear these or not. People who are wearing these are usually running behind me, she says. And uh, it's just it's just a magical moment. And she continues to run in her sandals in ultra marathons. This is not a marathon. Those are ultra marathons, upwards of 100 kilometers and more at a time. Just an amazing story, an amazing woman. Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing you in the Kimball Tower this week and watching all these films. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much to everybody as well for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, David Glenn, and our sound engineer, Marina Ekstrom-Pratt. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Johnny Stallings, who wrote and recorded music for the podcast. Thank you all. Until next time, see you in the 250 of the Kimball Tower. Thank you.